Howdy. It's the MMA podcast from the Fight Site. You haven't heard from us in a little bit because last week's podcast is gone forever. Basically what happened is it was nobody's fault really, but only one person's audio was recorded. Some of you may have heard that and been like, this is an interesting podcast where it's only Shri Ram speaking. Um, I'm interested to hear if anyone actually listened to the whole thing of just the solo show. (laughs) Yeah, I think the the, uh, Sound of Violence people mentioned something that was pretty deep into it, so I don't know whether they skipped around, but um, yeah, someone listened to parts of it. And maybe you can hear it to make up for last week's podcast not happening. Uh, we have a special surprise for you. Maybe you haven't noticed yet, but Shuram has a microphone. Yeah, it's not just the inbuilt one on my fairly old computer, so hopefully this sounds better. Uh, and if it does, I'm sorry for sounding better. You sound better to me, and you sound louder to me, and I think that is a good combination. Our audio will be more balanced, and that's... Yeah, it uh... probably makes the mixing easier. Yeah, yeah. Not that I really do any post-production, because who has time for that? But That's true. I usually just try to make it louder in post so, we're going to try to talk about UFC 259 again, especially the title fights, um, the light heavyweight fight between Israel Adesanya and Jan Blakovitz. I, I say his name differently every time, <laughs> and the bantamweight title fight between Peter Jan and Aljamain Sterling. Those are definitely worth discussing, you know, maybe one or two other fights from that car we might mention, but uh, mostly we don't have to because the important fights we did commentaries on, so... If you're not a patron of the fight site yet, highly recommend it. Uh, so three dollars minimum, you can get basically all of the content that we have behind the paywall, which includes like the video version of our commentaries on a bunch of fights, including from UFC 239 the two title fights, as well as Cruz Kenny and uh, Benavidez Askarov, and th- those were all really good fights to talk about. We tried to do commentary for this past card, where it's <laughs> Muhammad and. Uh, Tried to also do Ige Tucker, but Ige Tucker ended immediately, and Muhammad Edwards was one round and some change before the eye poke. So we'll discuss those fights. Uh, probably not as much to get from the commentaries on those, but the commentaries on UFC 259 were great, and we've done a bunch of other good stuff. So we try to put as many of these things out for free as podcasts as well, where you can you know try to find the video yourself and follow along, but it's just not the same, honestly. It's, it's just much more convenient and interesting to watch it along. Uh, synced up so lots of other benefits to being a patron of the fight site I highly recommend checking it out it's what allows us to exist as a site and uh, yeah if you like us and get me cool perks like an actual microphone yeah this is how I got sure on this microphone (laughs) so if you want our quality to improve and for the site to keep going and for things to progress then that's that's the move cool so UFC 259 it happened we talked about it with Ryan Wagner and now that's all gone so, I, I definitely don't have it in me to be as original and thoughtful about these fights as I was last week, but <laughs> we can definitely try to do something of substance. So, let's start with the title fight at light heavyweight. Uh, Israel Adesanya was upset. We weren't giving him too much of a chance. Uh, if you've gone to the site recently, you'll see we have an article there uh, by Matt Fenrich. It's very, very good about you know basically what Jan did to win. He also wrote an article before the fight about... <laughs> why Jan could win and then I forgot to publish it so no one will believe him that he thought he had a chance we are a complete mess we're a very well run site (laughs) but if you give us more money I won't have to have a full time job on top of this and uh, maybe maybe we'll get our act together 
That's your motivation. But yeah, the fight. Talk about it. Yeah, uh, we saw a lot of um, what... So, first of all, the issue with Israel Adesanya, if there was a big issue with him uh, going into this fight, was that he kind of relied a lot on big reactions from his opponents, from his feints. Uh, And that's one thing that we saw an issue with in the Yoel Romero fight, but Romero didn't really bother to keep much activity up. Uh, Jan Blachowicz kind of built off that, but also a lot of it was his his size, his power, and those are things that Adesanya wasn't necessarily used to. It's not that he was at a size disadvantage in terms of the striking. Blachowicz was definitely the heavier man, but he was also a little bit shorter and a little bit squatter. It's that Adesanya's game tends to work better defensively with a fairly pronounced range advantage where he's able to just fade away from anything that his opponent throws and that wasn't quite there so Jan Blachowicz was able to uh, box from kicking range with the jabs and the straights without uh, leaping in and getting angled on which I think was one of the bigger uh, considerations but the biggest one is probably Blachowicz's kick defense I think the interesting thing in this fight was that we saw a couple things that Blachowicz had done before technically it's just that we didn't really expect it to happen against someone like Adesanya at that uh, level of depth. For instance, the kick defense was something that we saw in uh, Blachowicz's fights against Dominic Reyes and Luke Rockhold, where neither could really get off a strong uh, open side body kick for free, at least. And in that sort of fight, you could say, well, both of those guys aren't particularly rounded kickers. They tend to kick straight to the body, straight to the head, uh, through the open side, and Blachowicz just has to like have a little bit of... Um, tact and blocking with both hands and maybe countering but not necessarily where Adesanya is a very very deep layered kicker he's he can kick from orthodox and southpaw he can kick the legs the body and the head he plays them off each other he feints them to set up punches and Blahovic seemed very aware of that in a way that I don't think he's had to show in previous fights uh, he draw his leg back at the knee in order to counter the calf kick uh, he blocked with both hands the round kick and Adesanya couldn't really kick right through it, which meant that he'd have to come in and engage Blahovich in the pocket, uh, where Blahovich was fairly reserved with his defensive reactions, and it meant that Adesanya would be walking into counters, which is the other thing that I don't think many of us expected Blahovich to be able to do. I know you mentioned, Ed, that it was a pretty decent question whether Blahovich could actually counterpunch people with safe uh, leads, and that's one thing that Adesanya is fairly good at. He can, you know, if guys don't... Uh, present actual deep counter threats. You can just jab at them from range, feint to draw the counters out, uh, play his threats off each other like the punching off kicks. And Blahovic's counters had mostly been guys being fairly bad offensively. Uh, but he looked very good here in order to limit Adesanya's output and to limit his ability to build off his entries. Um, one interesting thing, I mentioned this in the first one, but uh, he started turning those checks into like little uh, lead leg teeps and like lead leg kicks, which... Uh, kind of showed his awareness of Adesanya's game, where like Adesanya would like faint, would try to kick, Blahovic would check, Adesanya would faint the kick, draw out the check, and Blahovic would immediately uh, go to cut off Adesanya's punch entry off that. It was, it was a very smart performance from Blahovic that didn't necessarily show that he was the better fighter, but it did show that he had a lot of awareness up until the uh, final takedowns that sealed the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, you know, from a, a broader perspective, with me not remembering a lot of the, the uh, specifics, <laughs> something to think about was that you know he's had close matches on the feet before matches I, I've, I've been watching wrestling all day he's had close fights <laughs> on the feet before uh, Jan has where he's kind of gotten nervous and forced those blitzes and, and really drawn them out and done stupid yeah. things and gotten countered uh, I mean he was even doing them in the Reyes fight but luckily Reyes was also doing them so he was able to <laughs> counter punch uh, against Thiago Santos that's something that happened there 
Um, so I think fundamentally he's gotten a lot better, but also decision-making has improved. He looked like a very smart fighter, like you said. And I think drawing out the fight and just keeping it close and making Izzy uh, a little nervous, making him have to pick up the pace and the pressure. If you listen to the commentary, which we didn't because we were recording commentary, apparently they were they believed that Adesanya was up big the whole time until he started getting taken down. But watching it looks very, very close. And uh, I, I think we, we definitely gave Jan at least a round before the takedowns, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people thought that Jan clearly won round one. I don't think we thought that live. Uh, I think we gave it to Izzy, but it was like a concerning round for him. Yeah. And then we gave Jan round two on hitting harder, even if he didn't necessarily seem to hit as much. And then round three was Izzy's only clear round, and then four and five are the takedowns. Yeah, there were a lot of weird dynamics. Like uh, Izzy was really hesitant to lead with his hands, uh, which is how we kind of saw that Jan's kick defense was where it needed to be to win the fight. Because uh, he was scared of getting countered, because Jan was really swinging on those counters on Izzy's uh, <laughs> boxing entries. But after he started actually getting hit by them, I think Izzy realized he didn't have to be as scared of the power as he thought he did. And that's when he started getting more aggressive with his hands. So that didn't, didn't start happening till the third or fourth round. And that's when Jan started to double change for doubles more often, because he was looking for counter takedowns on most of Izzy's hard entries. Uh, but he was looking for body locks. And body locks, you really have to get tight, uh, you know hip to hip you have to get really close immediately and, and execute quickly uh i don't think Jan's that guy <laughs> i don't i haven't <laughs> seen him hit a lot of body locks in his career so it's a tough takedown to get in the open space because you can just get your hips right back and uh izzy's a better clinch fighter so if you get a lot of uh, space there he can easily pummel and get away or establish a dominant tie so body locks were tough although i didn't love izzy's reactions uh, it looked like most of his wrestling defensive strategy was to be near the cage and to let his back hit the cage and work his way up from there and didn't really care if he hit his butt or not, uh, which I, I didn't like that. So there were definitely some moments where Jan looked like he had an offensive wrestling threat going. Uh, but yeah, it was it was later in the fight when Izzy started to lead more reliably and when he was a little more tired, honestly. I think he he wore out from fighting a, a close fight and having to, you know, exert a little more entry to get his off, uh, excuse me, exert a little more effort to get his offense going. And uh, I also think you know, having to wrestle out of those body lock attempts was also tiring. And probably just carrying more weight than he's used to, I, I think, also played a factor. So his feet were a little more set, his reactions were a little slower, and he was really, you know, focusing on trying to win the stand-up because it was, it was competitive. Um, so that's when Jan finally shot the double. It wasn't like a pure reactive double. I think he just jabbed, jabbed and doubled. But uh, Izzy was really slow to try to angle off and get to his wizard. That's what he was looking for, to kick his hips back and get the wizard, but... It, it took some time, and it was, it was way too slow of a reaction because Jan's drive looked really good. He still did that stupid thing where he leaves one of his feet on the finish. Like, you just need to run your feet all the way through, man. They'll fall over. You don't need to kick off the ground. Uh, that, that's how MMA gyms a lot of the time teach doubles. I'm like, you don't, you don't need to do that. Um, but it worked. It worked, and I think being a big guy definitely helped. But he had a lot of horsepower on those doubles, and that was good. And the second time he doubled him, uh, Izzy was doing, like, the drunken boxing thing, and his stance was falling <laughs> apart, and he just looked a lot weaker. At that point, Jan was fresh, and, and he just blew him off his feet that time. So I think Izzy's wrestling, it's hard to quite put my finger on it because I think there were contextual factors that made it look worse. But I think, uh, you know, normally he's fighting in a way where people are trying to reach him and you're trying to cover space with your shots. Uh, but at this point, he, he really wanted to be in Jan's face, so he was keeping it a lot closer, and I think that played a factor in why he was easier to wrestle. So that was an interesting factor because before the fight, I had seen Jan take a couple of guys down, um, but, you know, those guys look terrible. 
<laughs> when he was wrestling them, so I didn't figure it would be much of a factor. Um, but yeah, it, it turned out to be a, a thing that really clinched the fight for him. Although I think he he could have probably could have won it if he didn't take him down. It, it was that close, but uh, that this definitely what sealed it. Yeah, there was. I think Jan landed the cleanest shot of round five. Anyway, it was that uh, right hand off the hand trap, and I think that shot kind of showed Izzy's big defensive issue on the feet. Uh, in re- with regards to the whole um, reach thing, where Jan was able to just reach out and punch him from his stance, and Izzy wasn't quite prepared to do anything but pull. Um, I think there were some interesting moments in terms of uh, the counter punching because Ryan mentioned on the last pod, Izzy wasn't quite the counterpuncher that people thought he was. He was still able to land a really nice counter in the exchange in round three, uh, but it was still kind of a weird counter where, like, Jan seemed to technically have the better position, and Izzy was still, like, swinging squared up. He was just, like, the better, cleaner puncher, so it got through first and hurt Jan bad. But, yeah, there were... It was way too close on the feet considering how... um, Considering, you know, the reputation difference between the two. And Jan did a really nice job exploiting that. I think the, the thing in the fifth round... Izzy was definitely tired, and I think a lot of the people saw his, like, little taunt thing mm-hmm. as him just getting cocky and getting taken down. I honestly think it was he was looking more tired than he was to hide the fact that he was actually tired, uh, which <laughs> is a thing that I'm not sure people do, but, you know, it's like, this is just, I'm faking, I'm not actually tired, of just having fun in here and slowing down, uh, coincidentally, at the same time. And then Jan was just like, no, I'm just going to take you down. But, yeah, I actually really liked the takedown entries from Jan. He was able to draw out that same counter-reaction from uh, Izzy, get him leaning over his hips and knock him over. Um, it was a, a pretty rounded performance from Jan, something that gives me a little bit of faith against strikey light heavyweights, which is where we get into the next challenger, who is not a strikey light heavyweight. But uh, I think this kind of thoughtful preparation is going to go far. Is it? Is it Glover? Yeah, it's Glover. That's a who weird else one. could it be? It's definitely He's a weird immortal. one because, you know, I'm I, like you said, I'm confident in his ability to beat pretty much every light heavyweight on the feet, but we haven't. When was the last time we saw someone wrestle him consistently? Was it Gus? Uh, might have been Gus. Um, so that didn't go well news. for him. But Gus, Gus is actually a decent offensive wrestler. As we know, he took down John Jones multiple times. So he's, he's actually pretty solid there. Uh, but yeah, Glover is more of the fall over onto my face, <laughs> latch onto a single, and you know, sit through to deep half or something like that. And try to sweep or get back back up to my knees and, and keep working the single like he's got to fight through being half dead to get his takedowns a lot of the time uh, i think he has like a solid takedown to him as well but just his striking to get into those ranges is not so solid and his durability is like through the floor so you just like <laughs> blow on him and he's rocked but he can still wrestle with you and his recovery is decent and a uh, very gritty fighter so that could be a weird fight but i i, I can't i don't want to root against Jan because that makes Izzy look worse, and that makes Robert Whitaker look worse, and it just it makes you well remember. That's the important like it, one. It lowers the status of all fighters who who have been good through this lineage. So he just needs to keep being good. Um, it might have been a matchup specific thing, so I don't think he's just gonna like wipe the floor with everyone. It's not like oh, there's levels to this, and he's a level above every light heavyweight. I think a lot of it was was the way the matchup worked out, which is funny because before the fight, I was like, oh, the matchup doesn't favor him at all. But uh, seeing it, you know, it looks more obvious. So I guess we're stupid. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing with the Glover fight also is that Jan learning to tone down his blitzes a bit uh, helps in terms of takedown defense. Because we saw in the Gus fight, yeah, he boxed Gus up relatively easily, but Gus was able to just change levels and take him down reactively. Yeah. Uh, Glover probably isn't going to be able to do that the same way just because Jan is 
uh, starting to blitz more on the counter, for instance, jabbing straight more from his stance. And against Izzy, for instance, he was able to like drive him back and kick on the exit, but he didn't like spam that uh, because he knew that Izzy could just plan and counter when he blitzed. He could he blitzed on the counter to drive Izzy back when he wasn't in position to just uh, sit down on his counters. So that's an interesting thing. I think Glover is just ridiculously liable on the feet at this point. Like pretty much everyone he's faced has hit him really, really hard, really early. And uh, Jan might be smart enough to not go to the ground with him and just make him get up, but, you know, there are some interesting things there with uh, old, light heavyweight, very hurtable Damian Maya. So Nice. So that's that fight. We definitely talked about it more <laughs> on the original podcast, but <laughs> this is the replacement. What can you do? Uh, Peter Jan versus Aljamain Sterling. I had a lot to say about this before the fight because I wholeheartedly believe that Jan was going to out-wrestle him, and he did. And I recorded a podcast about it, and I wrote an article about it. And then after the fight, I recorded another podcast about it, and I wrote another article about it. So that's four pieces of content for you about how right I was about this fight. Uh, but there's also some strikey things to consider. So before I get into the wrestling things, uh, Shiram, I think you're working on an article, or at least you've put considerable yeah. thought into what could become an article. Um, so why don't you take the lead on this, this one as well? Yeah, I'm working on the article. It's just I've got uh, several exams coming up, so it's annoying. Oh. But, yeah, I'm, uh, I've done the intro, and that's the important part. So the cool thing about the striking was Aljamain Sterling's fairly thoughtful preparation against someone who's, I think most people would agree, a much better striker going in. You know, a lot of Aljamain Sterling's edge was just uh, a lot of jank, but knowing what to do with it. Like we saw his approaches in, for example, Jimmy Rivera versus Pedro Munoz. They were fairly different. And he was more versatile than people gave him credit for. Against Peter Jan, I think he keyed in on the high guard and uh, Jan's tendency to start slow, uh, where he'd be able to drop the high guard and start hitting the body, kick the body a lot, and um, you know just general things, level-changing offense, because he couldn't really hit Jan's head all that cleanly. Uh, Jan's high guard is relatively reactive, and if guys start going off on it, he can just start grabbing clinches, which is one thing that Jan is just absolutely elite at. But the body work worked up until like the third round where when uh, Sterling would try to drop the guard and kick, Jan would just cross-check the kick with his lead leg and that pretty much killed the tactic at the knees. It was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Uh, the more interesting part was the clinch work, which kind of flows into the wrestling stuff that Ed would cover far more, well, Ed has covered far better than I could. But it went into the striking really well where as soon as Sterling came in with a big flurry, Jan would start countering. He did that dipping jab at the beginning of like round three, which Ryan mentioned is something that really uh, drove off Aljamain Sterling's volume. But the clinch entries, he'd immediately go for a wrist and just start absolutely killing uh, Sterling on the brakes, just flurrying him absolutely viciously. Uh, I actually liked um, some of Jan's entries in this fight with regards to the body work, where he'd enter with the left hook to the body and go up to the head. Uh, one issue that a lot of guys had against Sterling is just his length, and he had decent ring craft against guys like Pedro Munoz, which meant that guys who were more plotting couldn't really get in on him. And uh, Peter Jan kind of toned down the shifting offense in this fight, I think, for the takedown threat. But as we learned, he didn't really need to worry about it, and what he did more was just entering uh, in his stance with that left hook and the jab and uh, just beating the hell out of uh, Sterling. So Sterling gave him enough opportunities to just kill him on breaks, and that was the bulk of the damage done in the fight, I think. But it was just a, it was a brilliant fight from him, and especially how it connected to the wrestling, where uh, Sterling would shoot and he'd just immediately go for the bicep or the wrist, and Sterling would just get killed at the knees by it. It was uh, just, it was a joy to watch. Yeah, um, Aljo kind of, 
it's tough. I, I don't want to say he screwed himself with his game plan because I think it was a logical game plan and I think it made sense, all things considered. But I also think it was his undoing um, at the same time. So It was always going to be that. A lot of the narrative about how Aljo was going to take him down, take his back, was about, oh, Jan overextends himself on his entries. Jan gives up these positions. Jan gives you a lane to to his back to the clinch. Uh, oh, oh, man, we lost uh, me roasting Ben Cohn on the last podcast. Let me do it oh, again. Yeah. Uh, ben Cohn, you bum. You uh, wrote an entire <laughs> article about how Aljo was going to beat Jan in the clinch, and he got his ass kicked in the clinch it was not close so ben you're a bum uh i love you but you're a bum um just about this fight ben is also still confidently giving takes about the clinch what was what was the new fight that he's talking about uh, i don't oh, remember he's talking about leon, leon, leon yeah. and, and Bilal. he's saying because of that fight usman's gonna kill leon in the clinch i'm not saying he isn't but just you know we'll very, get to that yeah. very brave to immediately go back into clinch takes after you failed so miserably the first time uh <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's ben getting his comeuppance he was very aggressive about this take, so I have to rub his rub his face in it. Anyway, so also about how Rivera is actually better than uh, better than Jan and would win. Correct. Yeah, but you know, actually, taking... we found out that so Rivera is actually better than Sterling. Hmm. No, that's not he true. He might just be the best fighter in the division. I agree. Even though he lost to Munoz, but you know who's counting that? Yeah. Twice, maybe. <laughs> anyway, so. People were talking about how Jan on the lead was going to be irresponsible and that was going to put him into bad wrestling positions. And I said, first of all, Aljo's not good at that. <laughs> He's not good at, at taking people uh, into bad situations as a grappler off off the back foot. Uh, you saw it again in the Pedro Munoz fight, most of all, that his reactive shots are just not good. It's hard for him to, from his striking stance, change levels and get into a double situation or, or try to like duck under a new clinch. He just doesn't do it. It happens very little. It's funny because if you watch his first couple of UFC fights, he did do it. It was much more common for him to try to change levels under strikes. But when you're a wrestler, starting out in MMA, that's more so your bread and butter. Uh, that's the easiest way for you to get into your game is just let them try to strike with you and figure it out from there. Uh, so I get that. But as he developed his kicking game, it became less and less common. Very, very similar, actually, to what happened to John Jones. Uh, the more he focused on this weird striking game of his, the less effective his wrestling became because it wasn't connected. So for Aljo, off the back foot, his striking doesn't really serve his wrestling. On the front foot, it does when he pressures. So people were saying, okay, well, Jan's going to pressure him because he's the pressure fighter, so he's going to open himself up, and maybe he'll put himself in those situations. Maybe he would have. I don't think so, but it didn't matter because Aljo insisted on taking the front foot he made certain that he was the one leading and pressuring which i think was a good idea because he he needed to pressure to win the fight if he if he let himself take the back foot if he let jan walk him down as we saw when he started to uh he was gonna get beat up which is exactly what happened once he wasn't able to pressure anymore so it, it was it was the right idea but because he was doing that jan didn't even have the opportunity to put himself out of position he just had to react <laughs> to sterling um which was good and it was bad. It was good because he's good at that. <laughs> he, he was making good reads. Uh, he was finding his counters eventually, and his defense just in, in, a, in a vacuum looked great as, as a wrestler and grappler. Um, it was bad because he also you know, showed some things that are a little troubling. Ryan mentioned on, on the first recording that Jan's not as good in the back foot as maybe some people thought or just not good in the back foot in general. I think it's that his, his footwork his ring craft in, in terms of footwork off the bat foot isn't really much, but his ring craft is more than just footwork. 
Um, it's also like intercepting strikes or, or strikes to dissuade you from continuing the pressure. It's also grabbing the collar tie and uh, you know, using the collar tie to steer you back toward the cage or intercepting with the clinch and turning around with the clinch. So I, I think there's more to it than that. But, you know, clinching off the high guard is, is pretty easy because you can just turn your arms into frames and you're, you're in a clinch situation. But Aljo was the one who was really pushing those situations. So Aljo was taking initiative and making sure he was the one establishing the grappling situations. It didn't work very well. Uh, as you see in my article about all the ways that Jan defends. I'm not going to get into it too deep because it will take a long time. I mean, I've done a lot of work on it already, so I want you to go look <laughs> at that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it, w- it was a smart game plan. What wasn't smart was that once it stopped working, he couldn't stop doing it. You know what I mean? He was already committed to that game plan. When you spend months in camp preparing to fight a certain way, and it's it's not going your way. Did you did you train a B game? Did you train a backup plan? Probably not. Um, so you can't stop. So he couldn't stop pressuring. He couldn't stop shooting. And especially as he was getting tired, he's like, well, I can't take the back foot and let this guy beat me up. I have to keep trying to smother him and, and, and kill clock and try to tie him up. And that was just making him more and more tired. And Yama's getting more and more successful, uh, you know, throwing him off. And then, of course, Aljo trained this level change entry into spinning elbows. <laughs> which I think is not a terrible idea like in, uh, in itself, but it's kind of that Jackson Wink thing where you shouldn't make that your striking game. <laughs> it shouldn't be something you try to do multiple times per round. And I, it, I think it's also a thing that in MMA, when you get nervous or tired or panic, you start spinning. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a thing. You've seen it in so many fights. I, I've felt it. I'm someone who spins a little bit, and I, I've felt it. So it's definitely a thing. Um, he couldn't stop. And whenever he did it, he was level changing into these clinch situations and Jan pressured in to, you know, receive him and clinch with him. And he turned his back on him and he just immediately gave up rear standing. He got mat returned on his head, trap arm mat returned on his head. He's gotten tripped. He's getting thrown around. Um, and then those reactive clinches as Aljo got tired, uh, his arm started to tire out. Those reactive clinches became much more dominant for Jan. And, uh, he was nailing him with knees to the body right off the, uh, entries were like Aljo was shooting his double you know was pulling him up off the double and then kneeing him immediately so what happened was Aljo started to blade his stance off the get-ups and uh he was really just offering him his lead leg and that's how those Osoto Gari outside trips started to come into play so there was a lot of different dynamics about how Aljo's game plan fell apart and how it, it started to turn um there's also stuff that Aljo did well and I covered that in the article but now, overall, I just think the game plan was always going to defeat itself because if you couldn't get him out of there early, he was going to get tired, and you just you just can't you just can't get tired against Jan. So, uh, what do you think Aljo can do differently in a rematch? Oh well, we didn't even talk about how it ended. He he needed him uh. illegally. It was stupid, but I mean whatever. He he lost because of that. But the things that happened in the fight was was Jan winning. So how do you think Aljo can improve in a rematch? Uh, I mean, I'm not completely sure, just because I think the matchup looked like weirdly paradoxical for Aljo, where he couldn't really pressure without throwing anything. Like, he, he could only really push Yan back when he was able to draw the high guard up and really flurry on Yan. And Yan was willing to concede the back foot on those occasions early, but even early, Yan was still the one pushing Aljo back actively. Meaning that Aljo needs to Aljo needs to find a way to, like, pressure in a more measured way to, like, actually keep that up over the rounds. It's just not something that I think is going to happen. 
because he has such a big disadvantage in the pocket. And as we've seen, he can't really use the threat of his wrestling to push Jan back because Jan's the better wrestler and Jan looked like the better grappler in many situations. So it's just not something that Aljo has to push him back in the same way that he could push, for instance, Sandhagen back. And even against Sandhagen, it was a pretty frenzied push back. It's just that it worked and it looked really, really smart at that point. Where against Jan, it's very energy efficient, and I think Aljo knew that. I think Aljo knew that his game, like his win condition, was probably a submission in the first round. Mm -hmm. So I think it's tough because Aljo pretty much made the one read that I think a lot of Jan opponents could afford to make, which is drop the high guard and hit him in the body. But once Jan starts working around that, I think the big depth difference is pretty much always going to show. Um, the difference in the clinch, I think, is really, really notable for Aljo because he pretty much needs to, like, teleport to a body lock in order to get Jan down and keep him there, I yeah. think. Or even not get beaten in the clinch from trying for the takedown, where Jan's just going to yank him up, control the wrist, and ruin him on the brakes. So in conclusion, I think the thing is just take a knee every time Jan throws a knee and you'll be good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that he could force the DQ again. Um, something that Ryan mentioned on the podcast is based on the fight, he wasn't convinced that Aljo was actually that much better of a grappler than Jan because he did take him down in round one briefly because he did pressure him. The high guard did get him put back to the cage. He wasn't super quick of, you know, taking down the high guard and, and getting his hands ready to defend wrestling. Uh, I talk a lot about the head hands, uh, hips defense in my article, but. He did get in on double early. He did put him on his butt, and Yen was right back up, and it was not hard for him to get back to his feet at all. Uh, so that was something to consider. Also, you have to see that there was a moment where Aljo uh, worked from a single into a deep underhook against the cage, threw the underhook by, which is a really nice technique that he uses. It's something he did to Corey Sandhagen as well, and actually had he had the back. He had rear standing against the cage, and Yan immediately worked his elbow in, used the elbow pressure to get his hand on the forearm, peeled that off, the other hand off and disengage very quickly so it's not like yan can't deal with these positions so it's not like oh if aljo can just get there once it's gonna work out like i don't think so i think he's gonna have to very consistently put him in bad situations and take him down and and do the whole game plan over again but better um or he could try to take his time and try to be more successful with the things that he does and, and try to you know bank on things working um the problem is his takedowns aren't that effective so what is he gonna do uh, something he didn't do in this fight was shoot open space singles. I think that was a good idea not to do that because they're tiring and Jan has very good single leg defense. But nothing else was working. <laughs> so you might have to try that. And also, if we're talking about wrestling to the back, transitioning to the underhook against the cage and trying to get it from that position, good idea. Um, but also, if you shoot a single head inside, uh, you can usually transfer to your, your left hand if you shoot righty, for example. Transfer your left hand, try to reach around and get seatbelt grip on the back. That's one way that you can get to a more of a back position. And we've seen Yan use the, the quad pod defense uh, to get back up to his feet in those situations before. So maybe that could work, but I, I don't think he's going to insta-finish Yan if he gets to his back. I think uh, it's a really, really rough fight for him, and I don't blame him for anything he's saying at this point or doing <laughs> because he's in an impossible situation because he has to fight him again. And it was going so poorly, and it's really hard to think about how he can prove on it. Um, so I feel for him. I really do feel for him. Cause, and he, he's the champion now, which is cool, but you can't even celebrate because you know you got your butt kicked. Um, yeah, that sucks. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, he was, was riding cool the most fight. impressive win streak like I can think of in, in Bantamweight history. Yeah. And it's just it's just been soiled by this somehow. Yeah, yeah. So but, obviously we're on, we're on team 
Jan, Jan definitely won and is the better fighter, and he's one of the best fighters in MMA history uh, because, you know, his striking, I think, is, is in top 10-ish range as a striker in terms of skill, at least yeah. offense. Uh, his defense is great, too. Um, but then his offensive wrestling is also, I think, in that top 10-ish range, and that makes him one of the most versatile offensive fighters ever. Um, perhaps the the most versatile yeah, offensive like fighter. He's reaching ever. Holloway territory on the feet, and the wrestling is a pretty big difference there. Yeah, yeah. Like now, if like if he at size parity fought Max Holloway, I would be very concerned for Max Holloway because of the wrestling. Um, yeah. Not that Max is easy to wrestle, but I think the depth might not be there. He just has a good first layer in his striking. Yeah, he has a clinch and game, and yeah. Jan might even beat him there to get there. Right. So he is a very, very scary individual to be fighting. He's also a clown, and his <laughs> tweets are ridiculous, and so are Aljo's, and they're both embarrassing themselves. But with regard to the fighting, uh, I, I am very high on Yan. He's been my favorite fighter active in MMA for a few years now, and I feel very validated by all of his success. So this is the Yeah, I was slightly later right on toward. the train, but he's awesome. Mm-hmm. So that was those fights. Um, we talked about Cruz Kenny. We did we did the commentary on that. Uh, Benavidez Ascara. We did the commentary on that. Uh, I mean, do we really want to talk about Dober at Makachev? It's like uh, not not much to say. No. I mean, I'm still a decent. I'm I'm a big fan of Dober on the feet, but that was always a tough matchup for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know about that one. So uh, <laughs> Rockage beat Santos. I barely watched. I'll be honest with you. No. Uh, a couple of interesting things happened in the prelims, but I don't really want to discuss it. We have more things to talk about, so let's move on to Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad. Uh, first of all, our, our Leon Edwards love fest about how good he was is uh, gone. So let's do that again. Tell me about why Leon Edwards is great. Right. So Leon Edwards is, um, I think a lot of fighters, or rather a lot of people watching MMA, they tend to appreciate the offensive side more, which makes sense because it's like easier to see. Uh, but I think it's a lot rarer to see fighters like Leon Edwards who can really limit even the most offensively versatile fighters. Uh, and it's, apart from the ring craft, Leon Edwards has pretty much everything that you'd want to see in that kind of fighter, where he's just absolutely, he's pretty much impossible to get consistent volume off on. He's got so many tools uh, to keep guys off him on the feet. He's just his footwork is really good in terms of turning his opponents when they enter. Uh, he can grab reactive clinches absolutely brilliantly. He's a very good counterpuncher uh, off the off the footwork where you can uh, walk guys into counters and just immediately angle off. He makes Cerrone look a fool for like all five rounds with that. Uh, he's very good on the lead. He's got the southpaw double attack, but also against another southpaw in RDA, he looked like a very good pocket boxer. Uh, he's one of the better defensive strikers in the sport in terms of not needing a ton of pocket defense, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. um, he's got... A couple first layer slips and blocks, but after that, if guys try to push their advantage, he's just off on an angle or he's grabbed a clinch. Uh, his clinch entries connect to the defense that he has absolutely brilliantly. It's one of the best things I've ever seen in the sport. Uh, where It's kind of like Yen, where he can just slip a shot and end up on a collar tie or an underhook and just immediately start elbowing guys off that. Uh, his clinch game after he gets in is terrific, um, where he gets to that uh, wizard... Uh, with the head position and the bicep tie and just gets perpendicular to guys and just starts murdering from murdering them from there. Uh, it's just he's a very rounded, versatile fighter uh, who can play several different games incredibly effectively. And he's just, like, even off that layoff, it's something to be said that I wasn't particularly concerned about him just because he's taken so little damage through his career because of that style. He's going to be, I think he's going to be a real factor for a long time. I hope so. I hope so. And uh, he is looking sexy as hell lately. Oh, yeah. Aesthetic. 
<laughs> somehow he became even more shredded and just has probably the best physique in the UFC at this point, depending on what you're looking for. But um, he, he has definitely aesthetics, as, as, the, as the kids are saying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like Leon, too. I don't study him as much as any of you guys, but just him being able to offensively grapple as well as being a, a cool back foot striker is very interesting to me. And if you even remember his Usman fight, that was before he came to America to really learn how to wrestle, and he, he gave Usman a go, I'd say. Um, gave, gave him a tough fight, so... Yeah, I think he's a good for matchup a <laughs> for a lot of these guys in the division. He definitely makes me nervous just because he's the type of fighter to win by being better and not the type to really impose any sort of game on you, um, which I think we can talk about how that kind of came into play against Bilal Muhammad, barely, for like a second. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he, he likes to, you know, likes to counter, likes to work off the back foot, you know, doesn't really push a pace. Um, good in the clinch, and, and will take you down, will hit you off the clinch, but he doesn't really force those positions. It's just kind of something that happens reactively. Uh, but yeah, and, and his ring craft, that, I think that's probably the biggest knock on him is that he doesn't really have it, <laughs> and he's cool to let you push him back and, and get on the on, on the cage and clinch in those positions, but he's comfortable there because he's good, but that's probably a bad look when the champion of your division wins a lot of fights by putting people on the cage. Um, you know, it's different than someone against, like, Colby Covington. If you fought Colby Covington, I wouldn't really be as concerned about being put in the cage. Well, it would be a concern because... You know, we've seen Colby Covington get outstruck with, you know, dominant cage control before and still win a decision against RDA. Uh, Even though I I think, you know, if you look at the actual offense in that fight, it really wasn't that close. Um, I think it was a pretty clear RDA win if you look at just the offense. But people score control for some reason, which they shouldn't. It's not in the rules. Um, But yes, I I think he would win that fight, but it would still be weird with the scoring because of optics. Although I think he could definitely turn... Covington off the cage a decent amount just because of his his positional superiority and size a lot different than the RDA fight and Covington's getting worse um I I think he's regressing a bit yeah but anyway yeah the the ring craft's a bit of an issue but uh, I guess let's just jump into the fight what happened yeah so I think we actually saw some market improvements from Edwards in terms of that at least in terms of stuff that he can do against someone like Usman. So, first of all, Edwards, he was very aggressive in this fight early. Uh, it's something that we're not particularly... He was in the Cerrone fight, but in terms of ringcraft even, he just uh, he was pretty committed to keeping Bilal on the fence, uh, where Bilal would try to jab in. Because the thing about Bilal, we haven't really talked about him a ton, is that he's, um, he's a pretty aggressive pressure when he gets his fight, but he's not the best against southpaw kickers. We've seen that several times in the past. Uh, so it was a pretty layup-y fight for Edwards, which makes sense because like, it was 10 ranks b- uh, below him and it was on short notice. But it wasn't a fight that Bilal really had many avenues in to win, but he did have the avenues to maybe make Edwards' his flaws look a bit more pronounced in terms of the pressure and the wrestling. And he just really didn't get a shot to do that at all. So uh, what? as soon as Bilal tried to jab in to buy some space, Edwards would just angle off uh, even when he was controlling the cage and it would get uh, Edwards a lot of latitude just get back to control the cage immediately. I uh, like the cage cutting tools he had. It was something that we don't usually see from Edwards because he's not usually on the front foot, but he was able to at times pinch Bilal between the left kick and the right hook. And the playoff between the straight left and the left kick is what really gave Bilal so much grief. Uh, it really, um, it's something that we've seen several times from him before. Uh, the Neil fight uh, gave Bilal trouble there, and Edwards has pretty much been the guy at welterweight for the southpaw double attack. So... 
the points of concern, we mentioned this uh, being mean to Ben earlier, uh, <laughs> but the clinch wasn't as emphatic as I think we expected, but I think there were several exp explanations for that. One, uh, Edwards' first real clinch entry, that uh, long guard where he gets behind his shoulder and grabs with the collar tie, he immediately eye-poked Bilal off that, so I get why he didn't try that more often. Uh, Bilal was just like a little bit too far away, and he just pawed him in the face. So we didn't see what would have come from that. Uh, I think it probably would have been pretty bad, as it usually is when Edwards controls the initiative. But, um, you know, who knows. Um, Bilal, at one point, I think, was able to just get right to the body lock of Edwards shooting a takedown, which he didn't really need to shoot, but uh, he did get there. And it's pretty tough to do stuff from there against someone who's, you know, fairly strong. And Edwards just got out fairly quickly. And Edwards was beating him on the break by the end of the first round. So it's tough to really fault him for that. It's just, you know, I, I could get why it'd be concerning with such a clinch-heavy champion, but then again, Usman is A, growing less clinch-heavy, and B, growing a little bit less pressury, which means that Edwards might get a little bit more latitude to do the cool stuff that he did in this fight, you know, angling off the jab, uh, getting his counter-punching going, getting the southpaw double attack going. So there's a lot to like in this fight from Leon Edwards. I think he looked not rusty at all, which is surprising in a way, but not surprising in another. And he made Bilal Muhammad look several ranks below him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty clear win in the fight, although he couldn't get the win because of the DQ. It doesn't really seem like the kind of fight Bilal Muhammad is going to come back in. He usually wins by you know pace and pressure, and those things weren't going well for him. So I don't. And, and Leon doesn't gas ever. He just yeah. <laughs> maintains like the the same pace the whole time. Um, so you'd have to out hustle him, and you know Bilal wasn't having any success. So I don't see why that would change much. I actually think he was getting hit a lot. And Leon was actually more aggressive than we're used to seeing him, so it, yeah. it's possible he could have gotten finished. Uh, so I mean, he I, got hurt twice in the first five minutes, yeah. right? Yeah. Big body kick, big head, head kick. kick. Yeah. So. so it wasn't going well for him, so I don't mind. You know, as long as his eye is okay, I think it kind of did him a favor to <laughs> yeah. not take more damage. But yeah, I hope he's okay, and it sounds like he's okay. So that's nice. Uh, they're not counting it as a win, and Dana White gave this stupid statement beforehand that, oh, he has to look impressive. To win. I think he looked pretty impressive. <laughs> I thought he looked impressive, but you know, not technically a win, so they're not going to give it. Uh, makes sense. Makes sense to me. Uh, they did book Usman versus Masvidal for April, which I guess I'm glad soon. Uh, yeah. And you know, we don't have to really wait around for that. No, not wasting a lot of time. I expect Usman to win again. I don't really see what changes. Um, Masvidal looks like himself. It's not like short notice really made him look any different. Um, so hopefully Usman wins that one and. I could see them booking Leon in another fight. Uh, yeah, I think it's fairly likely it ends up being like Leon Colby or Leon Burns. Right. I don't think Colby's going to end up taking that fight because, you know, he's got his whole thing going on, or whatever it is. But, what is um, his thing that's going on? Uh, saying that people who aren't his girlfriend are indeed his girlfriend, which is... Is that uh, stopping him from taking fights? <laughs> apparently. He didn't take the Leon fight because he was, like, having sex with Pollyanna Viana, who uh, said he was just a friend. That was the literal reason that he gave. So I think he, he's... Uh, if I were Colby, I would not want to fight Leon, so I understand it. But uh, I think it's fairly likely that it ends up being like Leon Burns, because Burns mentioned him before. Uh, I don't think Colby takes a fight with Masvidal and Usman being booked now. So it might be like Colby Thompson at some point, but probably not. Oh, I forgot um, about him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hoping Bilal gets like a more winnable top 10-ish fight since like it makes a little bit of sense in terms of getting cheated out of the opportunity to actually win, uh, or actually lose, rather, uh, 
<laughs> a fight against the number three guy. So, you know, you could be like, I didn't technically lose, so, like, give me Kiesa or something. That would be a good move. I don't think you should take the rematch, honestly. Like, he's already angling for it, where he's like, oh, Leon's not a real man if, he fi if he's fine with that result. I mean, I get where he's going with it, but also, like, running headfirst into a wall a second time for an actual loss isn't the smartest thing to do. So, I would highly recommend against it. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think Leon ends up fighting Usman again at some point. It seems pretty inevitable just because he's looked so incredibly good and um, everyone else at Welterweight's either lost to Usman or isn't really that compelling of a challenge. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, Edwards-Burns is a cool fight to me. I'd like to see it. Edwards-Covington is an annoying fight that I don't want to <laughs> see. Um, so any combination of edwards burns uh, and Thompson and Covington matched up probably makes sense because those are the you know top four contenders outside of Masvidal, who's really not a contender at this point. <laughs> I don't know why he got the title shot, but as long the as the first event with a full crowd, so they want the the dough. The Askren knee guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Florida man Askren knee guy. That's that's Masvidal's reputation at this point, which is a shame because he is a a, a a legit veteran of MMA. Like has a lot to it. There's a lot of depth to his career. But now he's just the guy who did the knee and uh, can just live off of that fame forever and Holly Holm his way into title shots. So, congrats. congrats <laughs> Fighting Diaz every six months. Yeah, just fight nobody and get what you want. I mean, it's, it's the dream. It's the dream. Yeah, really. that's true. Can't hate it, but it is wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think as long as they make two fights and they involve those four guys, the, the division will progress, but they need to do that. And uh, can we trust the UFC to, to match make? Logically, no, never. Probably not. Uh, we thought it was pretty cut and dry with lightweight too, but then they're talking Poirier McGregor three. I get why they always think business instead of like what's good for the division, which I guess that makes sense. They're running a business, but also it's dumb and they should. I mean, yeah, long term it also doesn't make sense because like right. McGregor's probably not going to be around for long. So even if he does, like even if the, the best case for the UFC business wise is like McGregor beats Poirier and ends up fighting Khabib again or something, which like. That's two fights, and you've got a bunch of lightweights who might actually be able to carry the company moving forward. Mm -hmm. So you're just giving them nothing. It's a good point. It's a good point because you know they're cashing in on, on you know okay it's Connor and there's there's history and so it's their upper match. Um, first of all, Dustin is gonna beat him again now because he's yeah. diminished because he just got knocked out and he has a good read on him and it's you know way harder for Connor to beat him now. Uh, and two. I don't think there's a huge difference between booking Connor versus Dustin with regard to pay-per-view buys and just making him fight Diaz again. Yeah, there's, there's a rubber true. match angle there, and like just give him an easier, a way easier fight and headline don't whatever. Don't tie up with the him. division. Yeah, yeah, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it does make sense, but it makes less sense than other options. So even if you're thinking, oh, pure money-making pay-per-views perspective, there are other options. So UFC's dumb. Uh, MMA fans are pretty dumb. And uh, we're smarter than, than everyone. I think that's I the, agree. the main point here. But, that's the uh, theme of the podcast. Yeah. Other fights happened on this card. Not very important <laughs> ones with regard to their divisions, but uh, we can talk about them. Uh, we were excited for Dan Tucker. Dan Tucker? Dan Tucker. Dan versus Gavin Tucker. Uh, and Gavin Tucker entered with his face and got countered pretty quick. That's... um. I don't know if that's something we really saw from him in his last fight because I think Billy Q took the front foot and did most of the entering. Yeah. But, we saw, like, yeah. Gavin Tucker working the clinch a lot in that Billy Q fight, 
and uh, it was mostly off Billy Hughes entries where Quarantillo would do like his really noodly pressure game and he would just immediately get caught. Um, but here, Tucker tried to put the pressure on Ige pretty early and uh, got boomed. So Ige is pretty dangerous. He's not like the best guy out there necessarily, but he deserved to be ranked above Jeremy Stevens a, a <laughs> while ago. So, <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, I, it sucks for Tucker because he's like 40 and um, he probably should have gotten this kind of fight a while ago if it weren't for that Rick Glenn fight. He yeah. probably would have. But, um, you know, now he's pretty much done as a potential contender. So it is. It is what it is. Uh, Ige probably moves forward to fight, like, Korean Zombie or something, which is cool, but uh, also, like, a weird no-one's-going-anywhere-in-this-fight sort of fight. <laughs> yeah. It was weird. It was sad. It was going to be a good fight, I think. Yeah. Uh, Davy Grant knocked out Jonathan Martinez, which is depressing. I think because Martinez looks like a really interesting striker for the division, uh, good southpaw, and uh, Grant was definitely not winning that fight. And he, uh, I don't even, I don't even remember what happened. Do you remember what happened? Yeah, Martinez knocked him down in the first round at the end, but like a lot of it was just Grant throwing this like weird long volume. He's not really good at it, but he's like very aggressive uh, in terms of like throwing volume from like outside the edge of uh, Martinez's shots. So Martinez couldn't really, like, cover that much distance. If I remember correctly, he was um, playing Almeida on the counter a lot. And he's a decent southpaw kicker, but, like, not the best one. Uh, which meant that Grant is able to just outkick him by kicking him more. A lot of what Martinez does really well is playing off his knees. Where he'd be able to uh, duck guys into knees off his straight punches and start punching off those knees. But Grant was just, like, playing at too long a range for Martinez to really do that. So Grant started, like, at the end, just went to the body and up to the head, and it was pretty much just an accumulation of, like, the volume. Uh, it was a weird fight. Like, I think Martinez came out looking... Well, he came out looking worse, obviously, but also, like, there's more things to like about his game that we just didn't end up seeing. Yeah. For sure. It was sad. Yeah. Um, other things that happened... Oh, by the way... I've been scrolling Twitter while we're on our podcast because we're very <laughs> professional, and I saw that uh, Leon Edwards was on the Joe Rogan podcast just released. So, oh nice. Perhaps you will listen to that. I'm not going to because I yeah I don't listen to Joe don't Rogan. have the patience to listen to that. But <laughs> maybe if you really care about Leon, you should listen to that. Um, but yeah, the other I think the most notable fight that I was really looking forward to was uh, Matthews Nicolau is back in the UFC. Yeah, I thought his first time being cut was silly because he was on a big Incredibly. win streak and 3-0 uh, and in the UFC, and then he got knocked out in the first round by Dustin Ortiz through his guard with a head kick, which is, uh, it's not fluky necessarily, but, you know, you can't like... It's unfortunate. You can't be like, oh, he's a worse fighter than I thought he was because of that, but they were cutting the division at the time as part of that whole purge. They also cut Dustin Ortiz, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> but he was on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil. I actually watched that season. I was really impressed with them then. I thought his footwork was great. But he looked like a very polished striker, and he was... And, uh, yeah, he's, he's back. He had two fights outside the UFC and won them both. Not against anybody in particular, but he was back against uh, Manel. I think it's actually, like, Cap. But yeah. I'm going to say Cape because it's just coming out more naturally for me. So <laughs> he fought Manel Cape, who had a rough debut fight against Pantoja, where he had a really hard time leading and just kind of got picked apart with round kicks and straight kicks to the body, which was a feature of this fight as well. So, he, you know, he was champion in Ryzen, technically, because he beat Asakura, who beat Horiguchi, so there was a lot of hype on him. Uh, Kyle wrote about him for our, our Unranked uh, Fighters article, and 
it was another performance where in the first round it looked like he was going to have a hard time getting things going because Nikolai was kicking his body up. And he actually he shot that double across the cage, which was it was a bad double, but he shot him across the cage on it and then hit that knee block outside trip, uh, which was really beautiful and did some good work, good work on top. So the first round it looked like it was going to be some sort of shutout that like Nikolai was very, very, very good because uh, he's beaten him worse than Pantoja did. But in the second round, uh, Cape started pressuring a lot harder. And Nikolai was doing a pretty good job defending, but he was getting caught along the fence a lot, and uh, Cape was landing clean, which is, you know, if you if you told me before the fight that Cape was going to land a lot clean on him, I thought he would certainly be knocked out because of the Ortiz knockout. made it seem like he was shaky with regard to durability, yeah. but maybe it's just one of the things where you, know, you, you tense up or you don't tense up. I don't know how chins work, really. I think there's... Nobody does. I think there's more but... to it than, than many believe, but... Yeah, he didn't get knocked out. He didn't even get rocked, really. <laughs> he just took him. Uh, so he lost yeah. that round. But then he came back strong, working working well on the back foot, a lot of counters, a lot of straight kicks in the body as well. Um, and I think he, he did a lot of good work in the first half, three quarters of the third round. And then Cape came on strong again at the end, landed some clean shots. So I get the argument for two rounds for Cape. I get the argument for two rounds for Nicolau. Uh, I definitely prefer Nicolau, so I'm going to tell myself that he did deserve to win the third round. But did you did you think that was a robbery? Uh, I didn't think it was a robbery, but I did end up giving it to Cape, I think, just because the knees at the end were like really, really damaging and uh, had a visible reaction on Nicolau. Um, but it was a pretty impressive performance from Nicolau. You mentioned most of the stuff that I would have. I think Cape is... He kind of needs to like be convinced to throw volume. He's kind of like a... Um, I don't know. Who, who does that? He's, he's kind of like... Uh, there's no real parallel I can think of at the moment who's not like way too good for me to like have <laughs> them as a parallel if that makes sense uh, but yeah he like he does he plays on the counter pretty much exclusively until he lands one counter and then suddenly he's like hey this guy's hurt he's either in all finishing mode or all counter mode for like the entire fight and it's a it's a very weird dynamic because as soon as he went into like I'm gonna pressure this guy he, he did really well uh, he was able to I think it was the right hook that he landed a bunch on yeah. Nicolau as he was exiting. Um, the counter was like a little uppercut that put uh, Nicolau on wobbly legs. Uh, so he definitely won round two, but I think the issue also is defensive, which is why he doesn't pressure more often, unless he's really sure that his opponent is uh, hurt, because namely he just doesn't have any defense when he's moving forward. Uh, he's willing to just eat it and keep drowning his opponent in the exchange. So it's a, he, he's a bizarre fighter, and I think that game works against other fighters who are like more vulnerable on the counter it's just that he's hit two of the better boxers in the division who can really like take advantage of his uh issues at range and his volume issues especially so i don't know i think cape is still probably like top 15 he's yeah. just had like a he's had a, he had a really rough debut against the top five and he had a rough rebound against a guy who's probably top 10-ish at the very least so like i think it's weird because like even against someone like figueredo i don't think he gives them the same sort of issues because Figueroa is just going to walk right at Cape and do the same sort of thing where, like, he doesn't have that much defense. So Cape is going to land a counter and get confident. But also Cape is probably going to walk into a counter and get hurt badly. So I think there are more, like, competitive fun fights for him in the division, even at the top, than this. It's just uh, kind of like Brandon Royval, for instance, probably walks into a bunch of counters. But they're, these just weren't the ones for him to look very good. Yep. I enjoyed the fight, though. I yeah. also enjoyed the fight between uh, Charles Jordan and Marcelo Rojo. I thought that was a really cool fight, and Rojo impressed me. I thought, I thought he was a looked like a solid fighter, uh, but Jordan really stole the show with an attritional arm kicking performance. He <laughs> kicking the guard from open stance. Um, we not we Feno released a video on our YouTube channel 
uh, breaking down this performance, and it was a lot more a lot more nuanced than you might believe. And I've always kind of seen Jordan as like a, a fighter who has some depth for sure, and is neat and does some meme strikes, a lot of jumping, like jumping <laughs> deeps, jumping push kicks, and uh, not just knees. But he did a, uh, you know, go to a draw or whatever it was with someone who wasn't very good. So you might think that he's not good, but I think he is good, and he, I think he showed that his striking is deeper than most believe in this fight. But I don't want to get too deep into it because we have the video, and people should just watch the video. Yeah, I think the thing with Jordan is, I mean, I've been reasonably high on Jordan for quite some time just because uh, he's five years into his career, less than that at this point, actually. And that's about the point where fighters start, like, getting some offensive depth, even if they're not very good defensively. That's about where Jordan is. He's... A decent counter threat, which covers up for his um, fairly striking lack of like real ring craft in defense, where he's really easy to back up. And Rojo was able to show that up with the body work later, where he's able to draw the high guard and just go off at the body. But beyond that, he's a really impressive offensive fighter to me. The uh, arm kicking is something we actually saw in the regionals from him, where uh, guys in the open stance, he just kick the crap out of their arms. And when they go close stance, he start jabbing them. Uh, so he has like a game for both stances that's attritional and it, it works um it's weird because if you look at the fight against like duho Choi, for instance a lot of people just attributed that to like Choi being worse now which might be a thing but also jordan looked more interesting than Choi like ever did which is i mean it deserves some credit like jordan has a couple losses in the ufc but uh, one of them was feely and i thought he won that fight and the other was desmond green up at lightweight which is really tough for a guy who hasn't really developed much takedown defense yet uh, so, I mean, if Jordan, like, goes to a really good camp and develops some things that are pretty routine for prospects to struggle with, I think he could be a real thing at featherweight. Uh, he's really interesting, and I'd love to see him do well. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Moving on to the card this weekend, uh, it's not very deep <laughs> in terms of names that we already know are good. Maybe people will surprise us, but we're just going to talk about the few fights that interest us, starting with the main event. Which I think if uh, if this was a different card and Brunson versus Holland was just a fight on that card, we wouldn't spend that much time talking about it. But yeah. people really like Kevin Holland, and I get why. But here's why I think he's a meme fighter. <laughs> Not just because he produces memes, like the things he says and the things yeah. he does. That That's definitely part of it. But I think an important quality in being a meme fighter is your game is not optimized for MMA. Like, you win by doing things that really shouldn't be resulting in wins consistently. Um, like, if you are someone who is cool taking the back foot a lot, but doesn't really have, like, a back foot counter game, and getting put in the cage, and you get out-wrestled by British people, <laughs> that's probably a bad sign, I would say. You get taken down by Tiago Santos, that's probably a bad sign. Um, you get put on the back foot a lot by uh, John Phillips or Darren Stewart. Like, I, I, he's just not good enough to have the status that he has i don't not like watching him i do like watching him i think he's interesting and and pretty good um but he's not he's not that good so i think a lot of the appeal with him is is memes um and being a meme fighter sometimes means that you're not as good as your results suggest you win in, in kind of fluky ways but you do it consistently which is so strange uh, although it's I, frustrating. I, did, I did kind of think Stewart won that fight, uh, but you know, so that's that's me denigrating Kevin Holland. Um, that's gonna upset some people because I know everyone likes him, but just we we talk about fighters who are uh, elite or show looks that could become elite, and I don't think that's Kevin Holland. I don't think that's Derek Brunson either. 
but at least Brunson has like at this point a pretty functional game. He's with Hooft now, uh, who is the king of showing wrestlers how to do three things and on the feet, and it leads to better wrestling, and I think that's kind of where he's at at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Holland is that it pretty much shows that middleweight doesn't have any real prospects. Uh, Shabazian was probably the closest to one, uh, but even he struggled with Darren Stewart, which I guess Darren Stewart is just that guy now. But um, middleweight is just kind of a weird division where they're like, four or five genuinely good fighters and two decent ones, or two or two elite ones, rather. And um, after that, it tapers off really, really, really dramatically. And I think Kevin Holland is kind of a consequence of that, where in any other division, a guy who's, like, getting instantly taken down in the open by Jacare Souza probably wouldn't be a thing at all. But then, you know, Jacare Souza is also old and somehow relevant still. So when you knock him out from the bottom, you are now a thing, capital letters, uh, italics, bold, underlined. So... That's kind of the thing. I think Brunson is a, a tough test for him. Uh, Brunson, as you mentioned, he's with Hooft, and our friend Simon would tell you all about how Hooft is like one of the better coaches in MMA at this point. I think I agree. If you look at a lot of what he does, it's kind of like what AKA got the reputation for, but a lot better at it, where uh, the guys he has, for instance, someone like Kamaru Usman, uh, has like really sneaky defense on the uh, on the front foot sometimes, uh, and uh, like against Tyron Woodley, for instance, he can game plan, he can pressure soundly, and that sets up his wrestling in a way that guys like Daniel Cormier never actually managed to do. Uh, so it's like that kind of contrast works. And Derek Brunson's another one where you can look at his uh, historical issues. You know, his pretty wild blitzes that didn't play into his uh, lack of durability, uh, his general lack of depth on the outside where he could like not do anything when he's not blitzing. And that's kind of been fixed to an extent where he, like, I, if I remember correctly, he kicked up uh, Shabazian. He did some nice stuff with the blitzes, but also wasn't super reliant on them, played them off his wrestling better than he has in the past. And I don't think I scored the uh, Stewart fight for Stewart, but I did score it a draw because Stewart pretty much destroyed Holland from uh, from the top in the third round, which is bad news against Derek Brunson. Who's a, he's a very strong, powerful wrestler, even if he's not, like, the best at getting through uh, or at setting up his takedowns and like chain wrestling. He's just he's got insane horsepower from what I've seen. He's able to take down uh, Yo Romero. So there's like a lot to worry about here for uh, Kevin Holland. Even if he does have the striking advantage, which I'm still not that sure of, because uh, you know Brunson could just like pressure him and it wouldn't really result in that many consequences. So I don't know. I think it's a pretty clear fight that favors Derek Brunson. That he's an underdog, again, speaks to, like, how good middleweight makes some fighters look. Where, again, you know, we saw Shabazzian at, like, a minus 300 against Brunson, if I remember correctly, and we knew pretty much nothing about the guy. Like, his Darren Stewart fight was longer than the rest of his career combined, and people still ignored the Darren Stewart fight because we're so desperate for middleweights to look good. <laughs> and I think that's kind of where we are at this point, where, you know, we just want someone to give Robert Whitaker a challenge. Please, someone, show up. But I don't think Kevin Holland is that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just just based on him, like, going going for low, low percentage finishes, he's more likely to get them than other fighters. Um, True. He, he probably practices them. Like, if you look at the Jacare fight, that was so weird. The blame is a lot on Jacare as well because if you look at what was happening up to the finish, so Jacare took him down immediately, right? <laughs> he's sitting in his guard, and Holland's just chilling and laying on his back, and his guard is open and he's laying on his back, and Jacare could definitely stack pass. He could definitely double under stack pass, and he's not trying to pass his guard, and I definitely couldn't understand why. Um, and Holland's talking to him. 
Yeah. Holland's telling him a, like a story, and Jacare is listening. <laughs> he's sitting there and he's listening to his story and not passing his guard, and then he starts hitting him. And it looks like he's like, what are you doing? And then he hit him really hard, and he's like, oh, whoa, whoa. And then he hit him again, and he knocked him out. So is that a, a consistent way to win a fight, is to distract your opponent in your guard by talking to them and then knocking them out from the bottom? Probably not, but that's not his only trick. He has many tricks. So <laughs> is Derek Brunson a fighter who is beyond being tricked? I'm not sure. Um, he definitely doesn't fight smart a lot of the time. I think you know the Shabazian fight is one of the smartest performances of his career. Uh, but Shabazian's definitely someone who's demonstrated weaknesses that Brunson was very much able to exploit, uh, like not being good on the back foot or as a wrestler, defensively. Yeah. Uh, but so so is Holland. So this is someone who's much more dynamic, someone who's a lot more fearless, someone who's going to probably try to submit you from his back, someone's going to strike from his back. But you know, I think one of our patrons, I don't know who it was, but someone's been reaching out to me this week about this fight. He's messaging me about this fight, and like I didn't want to think about it this much. He's making me think about it. <laughs> Um, but I mean, grappling in Derek Brunson fights, who has he actually grappled with? Like, he fought Jacare twice, but Jacare knocked him out in the feet both times. Um, the Romero fight, there was a lot of grappling, but Yoel, it's really hard to judge other fights by what happens in Yoel Romero fights, because he does Just such an anomaly. No one else does. Like, he wasn't really trying to defend against Brunson's takedown defenses. He was, not takedown uh, attempts, he was basically just doing Kimura counters. <laughs> and then just standing up when he wanted to get up. It was very strange. Um, so that doesn't really count, but, like, ha- has there been a time? Yeah, it's pretty much a Shabazian uh, who he wrestled, that is. I don't think anyone's... Out- I mean, it's kind of tempered by the fact that, like, there's been one grappler at middleweight, and that right. guy just knocked <laughs> Brunson out. If he fought someone like Rockhold, maybe, but Rockhold would also probably just knock him out. So yeah. there's that. But, yeah, I don't know. It- it's weird. It- it- we're just... There's not much to say about middleweights, and it's annoying. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm in last place in my NCAA Championship Fantasy Tournament, which is... Uh, oh, man. It does it suck. But it's the first round, and points are less valuable, so I'm actually only down seven, so it's not that bad. Um, nice. I, I, I can stage a comeback. Anyway... So that's that fight. I don't, I, I'm picking Brunson. Are you picking Brunson? Yeah, I'm picking Brunson. I, I, it, you know, memes are unpredictable, so I can't predict a meme. Uh, yeah. I mean, people can do that, but you can't brag about it because, like, you didn't <laughs> say what was going to happen. So I, what I'm thinking is going to happen is that he's going to pressure him, put him on the cage, and wrestle him, and probably put up a good fight off his back. Oh, my God. Is this five rounds? Yeah, it's five rounds. Oh, that might bro. change things. It does change things, but I don't I don't care to try to figure it out. I'm not going mean, to figure it out. Don't it's one thing that, <laughs> yeah, it's one thing that the chat mentioned that Brunson isn't like if anyone he's faced with like a notable confidence difference, he's kind of like wilted, uh, which is kind of weird because like if you think about it, it's fairly like even on a big win streak and undefeated, Shabazian d- doesn't fight like a super confident fighter. Or Holland is just that's pretty much all he does. He like distracts you with all the flash in his game, and he's just you know that sort of fighter. Uh, I think over five rounds, if Holland isn't too broken down, Brunson might just become old Brunson, but. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a funny fight that's worth watching, but it's not one really worth breaking down. Yeah. The co-main event is between fighters that I rate much more than those yeah. two, but it's also kind of a, a, a bad fight because Binary. it just feels like one of those ones where whoever wins is going to go their way completely, and we're not going to get a good look at the other one, and the other one's going to look bad, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, I think it's an interesting fight mostly to see where Gillespie is uh, because, you know, he's had something like a year and a half off uh, after getting knocked out by Kevin Lee, and uh, that knockout was just absolutely nasty, like maybe the worst of 2019 in terms of pure damage, unless I'm forgetting one. Uh, well, Askren, but uh, that was 2019, right? Something like right. that. But it was it was up there, is what I'm saying. And uh, you know we kind of have to see where his confidence is, where he where his game is, whether he's made any improvements. And I mean honestly, the Lee fight was kind of weird because I get why you don't want to wrestle Kevin Lee because you know he's way bigger than you if you're Gregor, if you're Gregor Gillespie and uh, it's probably tiring. But then again, his path against Kevin Lee probably was just pure hustle, right? Like Lee just uh, gassing out from the wrestling pace rather than striking with him, which is kind of a weird choice when I don't think either really committed to a takedown, but Lee could probably afford it more. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe he comes out against Riddell and is like, this guy's really athletic, better try to set my takedown up, and uh, Riddell just booms him in the intervening time. But it seems like a tough fight for Brad Riddell, because we've seen uh, how uh, Alex De Silva was able to um, get him, I think it was like, it was a pretty decent takedown setup where I think Tosilva was able to like, draw out his attack and take him down. I'm not sure if Gillespie is that guy, but he's definitely a much better pure wrestler where he'd be able to get his hands on Riddell and chain from there. And we haven't really seen Riddell deal with that. We saw him against Magomed Mustafaev where a lot of his edge was just being just absurdly athletic and being able to defend on the fence. And the city kickboxing guys have had some decent strides moving uh, in terms of fight-to-fight -fight improving their takedown defense. But then a lot of the sample size for that was Israel Adesanya, which we saw... Uh, isn't necessarily a thing of, like, depth. It's just improving that first layer. So I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping Riddell wins just because Danny's a big fan of him and he deserves happiness once in a while. But um, it's a rough fight for him. I'm, I'm rooting for Riddell and I'm picking Gillespie just because... Yeah. Uh, you know, Gillespie's pretty uncomfortable on his feet, so I think it's possible that he has a hard time getting to good wrestling positions. For example, he failed to take down... A couple of guys actually in the UFC when he was just shooting in space and, and wasn't really setting things up and that could still be an issue for him but if he gets to any of those cage ride positions that Riddell has been put in by Mustafaev and uh, Alex da Silva that is an issue because <laughs> yeah. Gregor Gillespie is one of the best fighters in MMA at holding those positions I don't know when it's coming out but I have a video in the works uh that I shipped out to our intern. I wrote all the I wrote the breakdown. I, I picked out the clips, but I don't know how to do that kind of video editing, so I shipped it out to the intern. <laughs> so hopefully it should be out uh, soon. Um, but it's about how he used those rides against the cage against um, Yancey Medeiros, and he's just very very comfortable, like with one hook in against the cage, just one leg hanging off to the side. Um, it's basically how he rode in college. Um, but he was pretty good at switching to double boots, but he has he has a riding system that that's transferred from folk style that works very well for MMA and he's once he gets those dominant positions he can you know pass between mount um in, in the back and you know works that arm triangle game ground and pound off the back and he just has a good system there and I think Riddell will probably be out of his depth if he gets put in any of those you know more controlled positions so betting against that happening at all against a fighter who has not looked like a great defensive wrestler or hasn't really worked out his ring craft yet it seems like a like a safe pick but you know if he can't get it going at all um, he's going to get destroyed on the feet. So it, it could be a really bad fight for him. It could be a really bad fight for Riddell. Not sure, but I'm going to just go ahead and say that it's going to be Gillespie. And he's had all that time to try to fix things. I don't know what he's done in that time, but I'm just going to trust that he's made improvements. So I'm going to go ahead and pick him. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, talking of betting, I think Gillespie's like minus 200-ish, which, I mean, it kind of makes sense with the striker versus grappler thing. 
Uh, Riddell's probably the one who needs to stop him, but I think it might be a little bit valuable just given where um, that we don't know where Gillespie is, if that makes sense. You know, first loss, um, weird game plan against Kevin Lee, tough knockout against Kevin Lee, uh, 1.5 year layoff. There's a lot to expect Gregor Gillespie to come back looking not all that great. Um, and, you know, maybe needing to build into the fight before he starts wrestling. And for his part, uh, Brad Riddell did start uh, holding off the wrestling of Alex Silva, if I remember correctly, and just absolutely destroyed him in the pocket, which is really cool because Riddell's one of the cooler pocket fighters in the sport. Uh, you can really see him thinking there. Uh, he's a very, he's a really good counterpuncher. He's a combination puncher to the uh, to the extreme. And I don't expect Gillespie to be any more comfortable there than uh, Riddell is in the grappling. But, you know, it's a, it's an interesting fight. And uh, I think it's probably closer odds than that, but whoever wins looks like a minus 500. Mm-hmm. Are there any other fights or fighters on this card that really stand out to you that you wanted to say anything about? Uh, Leo Santos is fighting someone unranked. Nothing really interesting there. Just, you know. I think people like Grant Dawson. At least the, the betting community seems to like Grant Dawson. Uh, the betting community likes everybody. <laughs> um, I, I know betters who bet on, like, prelim women's MMA, and they're like, this person's really good, and I just don't understand it. Um, yeah, there's... No, I think we thought some things about Yenes before, I think. I think he was the one who, like, yeah, he looks like cut that guy off. With the, yeah, he cut that guy off with the head kick, which was cool. But Yeah, I, I can't think of anything. I don't think Gustavo Lopez is very good anyway, so I don't know. Uh, weird. Um, there's nothing else on this card. <laughs> uh, 260 is, like at least marginally better so that's yeah, that's one. a good card yeah cool um roman delizze is fighting he might be a good fighter he's a good grappler at least and he's georgian so i'm just expecting things from him we'll see what happens there i think trevin yeah. giles that he's fighting is like competent so it'll be a test and we'll see what happens there but uh yeah this will be interesting it's gonna definitely gonna conflict with uh the ncaa championship so i cannot promise <laughs> that I will be available to do commentary for the, any of these fights, uh, but I will try to do commentary for the NCAA championships. Yeah, and most of the cards coming up, I'm taking a look now, there seem to be like kind of one-fight cards, which I think makes... I mean, this is kind of what we expected from the COVID era. It's just still kind of frustrating when they have put on decent cards. So, you know, it's, uh, it's weird. Yep. So... Keep a lookout for the Gillespie video. Hopefully that comes out soon. Yep. And keep a lookout for whatever commentary we release after this weekend. It will almost definitely be wrestling, but hopefully maybe I can get someone to fill in and, and do the MMA commentary with you. I mean, you would just Ooh. watch the two the two last fights of the card, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, maybe someone will do that with you. I'll, uh... I mean, I can probably do that myself if it comes down to I it. But... You be by yourself, Sharon. Uh, I can... Do the thing okay. that we did on the last podcast, but on purpose. Yeah, up to you. Think about it. Think about it. You yeah. let me know if you want something with you. Yeah, I'll see. I don't okay. know if anyone else is watching. They probably have better things to do. Boom. There you go. There's going to be two commentaries. Nice. So check that out on Patreon. Also, remember that we have a fundraising goal. 200 patrons. We're about 25 there to get there. Uh, at 200 patrons, we'll release an article series about our top five USC fights of all time. And we're going to do commentaries on all of them. So get ready for that and tell your friends to subscribe. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you listen to our podcast regularly, I don't know why. It's like $3 a month. Like, what is, what is that to you? You know? Yeah. I mean, if you're listening, obviously you have a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You probably spend your money on way dumber stuff. So hop on Patreon, $3 a month, help us reach our goal. 
and you'll get content for it. It's, it's great. And there's so much other stuff on Patreon for you to watch and listen to. And Yeah, spend more money and you me. can ask for your own. That's true. Yeah, I can't convince you that our Discord server is worth being in. Only a certain type of person thrives there. <laughs> uh, a weird person. So if you're weird, maybe you'll like it in there. Um, but then $10 and above is requests. So if you want your own type of content or questions answered or videos or articles or what have you, uh, use that. But yeah, just check us out. Look at the tiers, peruse, do some shopping. But I think you'll be pleased with at least the access to the content. Is your article almost done? Uh, it should be. I mean, I'm giving stuff up, and that's always the annoying part. So hopefully yeah, it's done soon. my favorite part. Uh, I hate it. <laughs> every fight that I gif, it's like I've chopped it up into so many pieces that I just hate watching it now. Hmm. Hmm. Makes sense. All right. Well, that's it. Keep a look out. There's stuff coming out. We had a really big week of content, so I would say look through the website, fightsite.com. There's a hyphen in between uh, fight and site. <laughs> and uh, also check out our YouTube channel and our podcast apps that you're probably already on because you're listening to this. And... We're going to be starting a new YouTube channel soon for longer form content because the algorithm hates us. So we're trying to focus our current channel on shorter videos and then we'll have another channel for longer videos. And yeah, we'll, we'll let you know when that happens. That's it. Okie dokie. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks forever. for listening. <laughs>